Hear that? That's the sound of a patient whose health data is protected from a cyber attack. And that, that's the sound of a financial system that's digitally secured from bad actors. Right now, there's an invisible war being fought on a digital battlefield that impacts what we do every day. That's why at Paraton, we do the can't be done to help protect the vital systems we rely on. Because if we don't, the alternative is unimaginable. Paraton. Founders Brewing Company has found a way to make an IPA you can enjoy anytime that's perfect for any occasion with their all-day IPA. At 4.7 ABV, you can still taste the hops, of course, but it's the complex array of malts and grains that make all-day IPA a beer that will grab your attention. That full flavor and low ABV is what continues to make it a staple in my fridge. Look for Founders in your favorite beer store or check out their full line of beer at foundersbrewing.com. Founders Brewing Company, born and brewed in Michigan since 1997. From coast to coast, border to border, and around the world, you're going online with Bill Alexander. Laugh and learn while you listen to a brilliant display of radio. Online with Bill Alexander. Good evening, everyone, and welcome to this edition of Online with Bill Alexander here on WMCK.FM McKeesport. 107.5 FM WLDJ Newcastle. 1620 AM Huntington. Mixtape Radio International. Steel FM. WWSX Radio 99.1 Rehoboth, Delaware. Orca Radio in Owensburg, Kentucky. And streaming online tonight at iTalknet and PGHTalkRadio.com. Well... This evening, whenever you hear my opening, it says border to border and around the world. Well, tonight, I can honestly say we are talking border to border because the person I'm talking to tonight is calling me from the other side of the United States, the Pacific Northwest. And on the phone right now is Trudy Truitt. Trudy, how are you doing this evening? I'm great, Bill. How are you doing? I'm doing real good. So you're in Seattle, correct? Yes, I am. <laughs> so, uh, so I, I'm going through your bio here, and before I get you, before I start asking you questions, why don't you explain to my audience who you are? Oh, um, I am the author of um, the very first uh, fiction series put out by National Geographic uh, called Explorer Academy, and I've written um, more than a hundred nonfiction and fiction books for children. And that's really what I've been doing for the last, oh gosh, 15 years now. Okay. So when I, when I look at your bio, it talks about that you st- actually started writing at the age of 13. And you began writing a teens column for your hometown newspaper in Kent, Washington. What type of information did you have in the teens column in the newspaper? <laughs> oh, it was, it was gripping stuff. Um uh, we used to, well, it, it started because I made the comment to my journalism teacher at the time that, I, you know, I might want to be a newspaper or TV reporter when I grew up. Okay. And, he's, and he looked at me and he said, well, what are you waiting for? Why don't you do it now? And I, I said, what? And he said, why don't you head down to the, we have a little newspaper in my hometown of Kent, Washington, which is a suburb of Seattle. It's kind of, at the time, it was a farming community and... Um, had a Boeing plant, Boeing plant, a farming community. And he said, head down to the newspaper and see if they'll let you be a reporter now. What are you waiting for? So I said, okay. And I, you know, I headed down to my, my, um, the newspaper office and I said, um, I'm a young reporter. I want to learn how to do it. I want to, you know, explore issues of the day that are important to teenagers, like, you know, school lunches and, and other important stuff that we, that were on our, was on my mind at the time. And the editor said, you know, that's not a bad idea. <laughs> I didn't really think they would do it. Right. Um, and, and so what we did was we got together a bunch of kids that were interested in journalism that I knew from my school. And we started and we put this magazine together. And every month it came out with a local newspaper. And it was on, you know, topics that meant something to us, to young people, like, you know, uh, books to read, um, things to do around town, um, just maybe even a fiction story or two. Anything that was on our minds, they let us um, have, I think it was 12 pages at the time. Um, but what I loved about it was the ability that we were we had a voice. You know, all of a sudden now, look, you know, I'm 13, right. 
And we and teenagers have a voice. We had something to say. What what we said mattered, and adults were reading that. And so it was, yeah, it was a fantastic experience. And I, you know, I did it um, up until up until high school. We did it, I think, for about three years. So, do you mind me asking what year this was? Oh, yeah, nineteen. I'm going to say nineteen seventy six. Okay, nineteen seventy six, seventy seven, kind oh, of in that area. So bicentennial year. Then you had a lot to talk about. Yes, we did. And a lot was on, you know, there was a lot happening in the world at that time. Right. You know, there was inflation and gas shortages and all that stuff. But, you know, <laughs> teenagers, at least I did, tend to be a little more self-absorbed. So, <laughs> we, didn't, we, didn't, we didn't discuss a lot of politics of the day. Right. Um, but what it did allow us to do was to really just look at ourselves, look at the world around us, um, and share what was on our minds. And I, you know, from that experience, I, I learned that uh, you really, you know, you have a voice, no matter what your age is, and that's, a, that's an amazing thing, to be able to speak that voice and express yourself, and learn how to express yourself in a way um, that is convincing to other people. Because wor- we worked with an editor, an editor would, would edit my piece, just like she would with the other reporters, right. and so she would explain to me, you know, why we were taking out some things, why we were leaving some other things in, and tell me what I was missing. You know, you're, you know, you're missing this piece of the story, or you're missing... So I really learned how to write in different ways, editorially, um, expressing myself creatively. Um, It was a great, you know, it was a great opportunity for me and really opened the door for me to say, yeah, this is definitely something that I want to do going forward. What, uh, where I, where I grew up too, there was also a teens column in the local newspaper and i was uh, in the journalism club when i was in high school too and we had the opportunity there was like five schools in the area and each week we would one of the schools would take responsibility for that column and do similarly wow. the same thing that you did but now we're in 2021 and all the newspapers are going away And the kids aren't getting that same type of instruction. Now, yes, Yes. anybody can write anything on the Internet. But in your opinion, do you feel that that's good or that these kids that are writing stuff online need someone there to give them the proper instruction on how to do it properly? I think it's very similar to people who want to be self-published. Okay. So if if you're a person who wants to write... Um, and of course, when I started writing, lo, those many years ago, um, probably when I when I really started writing, like novel writing, um, so back in the early two thousands, it was a very different time even then to be able to get published. And I think what you lack when you just have that creative freedom without without a sounding board, without an editor, without learning what your craft is then you're not as polished as you can be and you're not really expressing i don't i don't think you're not really expressing what you really want to say in the way that you want to say it it's sort of like people who self-publish and they go to an editor and they they have many publishing houses reject them and they go well you know what i'm just going to yeah. publish it anyway you know and so you miss what what happens and then people read it and they go well gee this could have really used a good editor you know <laughs> because it's too long right. maybe it doesn't express things that well things are repeated things are confused that's the difference sometimes when you when you read a self-published book as opposed to one that has gone through you know really gone through the mill at a at a traditional publisher yeah. um not all but but some but i i definitely think that yes that you know one of the things that i learned at that young age um was how to write, how to get my point across, what information I needed to include, and what information I didn't need to include. And it's really challenging, I think, especially in this day and age, to really find, I think, news outlets in general or sources in general that are neutral and unbiased in what you read and what you see. And it's really hard to know, yeah. especially when you're a young person, when you're, when you're looking at something online, um, what, is, what is true, what is factual, what has been re- really researched, and what, and what isn't. Um, and that's, I think that's the biggest challenge for them, because when I went through, I went through journalism school, I went and got my BA, and I remember my journalism professor saying, Trudy, when you report a story, the listener, the viewer, the reader should not know your opinion. You should be able to present both sides of that issue. And I always call it like the Walter Cronkite syndrome. When, you, when we watched Walter Cronkite, you knew Walter was just going to give you the news. He was going to give you the facts. He was going to give it to you straight. 
it's hard to find that these days. Yes. Everything's got a slant. Everything's got a bias. Everything's got an opinion. Opinion has its place. Um, but I think it's just really important that, that, you know, kids know that how to research, how to resource, how to judge what they see, and then how to write things in a factual, clear, well-researched manner. Um, I think we're losing some of that. I, I, for my audience who doesn't know who Walter Cronkite is, he was the, <laughs> he was the main news anchor on CBS, and his tagline was, "That's the way it was." That's the way it was. And, you know, you uh, knew he was going to just tell you. Yes. Walter wasn't going to go, "Wow, you know, this it's a really a bad news day." Walter <laughs> would leave that up to you. Right. You know, Walter would leave that up to you, and and you know, Tom Brokaw was the same way. Mm-hmm. Um, some of our, you know, older anchors, they, their job was to present the news. Their job was to show you both sides of, if it was a political story, you were going to see both sides of the issue. Uh, and then you were left to decide on your own what you thought about that, what, of that news of the day. The- and I think what kids are sort of missing now is they're told, you know, they're, they're, they don't know where to go to just get factual information and sources are hard to come by that are unbiased and clear and succinct and factual. The other thing, and you mentioned too, that you went to college for your four-year, and I went to college for my four-year bachelor's in in um, broadcast communication, because mm-hmm. before we could work professionally, we had to have a four-year degree under our belt. That's right. And we had to have some type of education there to be able to do it. Now, anybody can go online call themselves a newspaper, a radio station, whatever it may be, and just That's put right. stuff out there. That's that right. they're just floating what they're just floating their own opinion and they're not right. they're not um like I say, walking that fence to try to be as accurate as possible. Right, right. And I mean it's permeated um into literature, into into particularly like in children's literature. I used to when I started up my career in um writing for children, writing nonfiction library books. So, you know, when your child goes to write a, <laughs> write a book report yes. on sharks. Okay, so we would go to the library. There would be a book by Trudy Turret um, about sharks. And, um, you know, and I remember that when I started, in, I think my first book was published about 2000, 2002. Um, and everything was pretty, you know, you could find good quality, you could find good resources. But I would always, look, you know, look to books and go directly to universities and to the museums and to, I would cultivate those kind of sources. And I started to notice that as I, as the years went by, um, it got harder and harder to find good sources of material that were truly, um, you know, strong, factual, good pieces of information. And when you're a writer, you get author guidelines from the publisher. So the publisher will give you a sheet that says, here's some good so- places to source. This is how your material should be sourced. They just give you a guideline. Maybe they want footnotes. And I started to notice the guidelines would change, and it would say things like, do not use Wikipedia. <laughs> <laughs> and, I would, and I remember asking my editor, do authors who write library text really use Wikipedia? And she said, oh, yeah, we have to tell them to stop. So it, it, I started to realize that, you know, the value of good source material right. is, so, is so important. You know, I want children, to, when they read those nonfiction books, to know that, you know, what they're reading is information that I've gotten from, you know, uh, quality sources. Um, and I think we are losing, we are definitely losing some of that. Yeah, and I think, I think that's very important. Now... After going to college at Pacific Lutheran University in Tacoma, you actually were a news reporter and a weather forecaster at KAPP-TV and KREM-TV. Now, when you were a news reporter, what type of stories did you cover? Oh, uh, so my pretty much everything. So when you start out in a small town. Um, KAPP is the ABC affiliate in Yakima, Washington. And I know you're across the country, but if you've ever been to Yakima, it's a very small town in um, central Washington. Uh, And I I don't don't know where the population is now, but it was pretty tiny when I was there. Um, And so so what, you know, you think at, at a big station, you have a photographer and an editor and a producer. We didn't have that. <laughs> so, so I would shoot my own stories. I would write my own stories. I would edit my own stories. So it was all up to, we had, I think, maybe four reporters. We had the anchor, 
then I was also the weather person. Um, <laughs> so, you know, I, I'm kind of surprised I wasn't running the camera at some point. But um, the kind of stories that I would do would be, it would run the gamut. It would be everything. I mean, if the, you know, if a fire truck rolled past, I'm going to follow the fire truck. Okay. It, I did stories on health, you know, education, um, city council, sometimes the court system, if there's something in the court system. I It's a farming community, so I would go out and interview farmers. <laughs> if there was a frost happening, the because, you know, the, the weather in, in, in Yakima was very, is very different um, than it is here in Seattle. Okay. It's very, it's very dry in the, when, um, in the summertime, snowy in the wintertime. It's a little bit more Midwestern-like. Um, so there was always something happening with the crops at some point. You know, something was freezing or there was a drought or something was going on. So I just learned to report everything. I learned how to write, how to report, how to edit, how to put the story together. Um, and in fact, I would be on the street with my camera. And back in, this was back in the 80s. Um, and when cameras were pretty large. Yes, I was going to ask you about that. Yeah, they, I think my camera uh, at the time was probably about 50 to 75 pounds. Uh. <laughs> and then you include the tripod, right? Yes. So since I'm by myself, um, you know, I would like stop somebody on the street and go, could you line me up in the front of the camera and, you know, put me in there and just click that little red button there and thank you. And then they would, <laughs> and I would do my, you know, my stand up and, and, and there, and away I'd go. So you just found, you know, little ways to be creative, but those are great opportunities because I learned how to do everything. Yeah. And, and unfortunately, I think a lot of those types of things are going away. However, I know people that work in this area in TV, and they have turned into their own camera people now. Right. But yep. the, the interesting thing, they're shooting on portable devices such as iPhones. Yes, yes. Yeah, because the yeah, quality is so is... good. But again, I understand. I understand where you're where you're coming from on that. I find that interesting. So what got you? So you were doing weather too. So in other words, you were just a weather reader then. Um, so what I would do was um, I would report during the day, okay, and, and I would get all my reporting duties done by about three o'clock, and then I would turn into weather weather forecaster. Okay, I would go get the maps together and you know collect all the like your normal meteorologist would do. Get the maps together and get the you know. Um, all the information together, and then I would go on at five with the anchors and do the weather. So how accurate and, were you? Well, in Yakima uh, and Spokane, so KREM, KREM is in Spokane, which is the second station that I worked at. Okay. In, 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 in central and eastern Washington, you can be really accurate because all of the weather is moving <laughs> toward you from Seattle. So you have the Cascade Mountains in the way, and once the, once the weather gets over the mountains, you know what's coming. Okay. Um, in Seattle, it's very, very different. Because we get weather off the ocean, there's a lot of things happening. And I, I always feel really bad for the weather uh, people here in Seattle because they take a lot of flack. I'm sure, yeah. <laughs> for, for things going sideways. Um, and, and because it's so changeable here. So the, the weather can shift very quickly. So, that you know, one minute you could hear, you know, you hear that, oh, we're going to have rain this afternoon, and then, of course, it never shows up, or uh, or it changes, or it shifts, and we have a convergence zone where I live in, in north of Seattle. Um, so the mountains play a huge role in changing our weather. Um, but in, in, in central Washington and eastern Washington, where it's very flat, and the weather comes over the mountains, um, you pretty much can see what's coming at you. So I was pretty accurate. Thank you, satellite pictures. <laughs> <laughs> so... When did so? When did you start writing? Then did could, did you leave TV immediately and then decide you wanted to be an author, or was there a period of time in between? Yeah. So, well, we I was living in Eastern Washington. My husband and I were living in Eastern Washington, and he was a teacher. Okay. And we were, um, and, and I was kind of at a crossroads, thinking, you know, because when you're in television, you if you stay in it long enough, you find that you move from station to station quite a bit, and we had talked about that. we had talked about it, and I felt like, well, you know, I had I had some years, a few years behind me. We were kind of ready to make a, a move back to the Seattle area, and and I thought, you know, maybe I would like to just do some freelance writing and freelance work. And so, you know, we so we came back to the Seattle area, and I did freelance work for a while. I did some, you know, writing newsletters, magazine articles, public relations stuff for mm -hmm. a little bit. And always in the back of my mind, I was thinking about when I had traveled around as a reporter 
um, in, in Yakima and Spokane, part of the responsibility that you have there as a weather anchor is you go and you visit classrooms. Oh, okay. You go into classes and you talk to the kids about weather. Okay. You know, and, and, and you answer their questions and you, you know, you show them what, how rainbows are made and what clouds do and how they move and how the weather patterns um, form. And I thought it would be really interesting and fun for me because weather is a hobby as well as what I did it, um, for a living to write a weather book for kids. So I did. I just, you know, sat down over the course of a couple months and, and put together um, some material that I thought would be, you know, kind of interesting for kids to read. Not really having that much understanding of children's literature, but kind of learning as I went. And so I sent the chapters out to several publishers, and they all said, no, 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 no. But the last publisher I sent it to, probably in a group of about 25, was Scholastic. Oh, okay. And and Scholastic wrote me back and said, "No, this we don't want this book, but we do library nonfiction for kids." And the editor said, "I kind of like I like the way you write. I like your style. It's very um, factual and and um, lively and easy to read. And and so w- we do library books. Would you be interested in writing four different library books for kids about the weather? And here's the topics we want. So I think at the time it was." like storm chasing, um, the water cycle, how clouds are formed, that kind of thing. And I said, sure. So th- that was my first contract to write weather books. And I wrote four weather books for, it was at the time, um, Scholastic had a series called Franklin Watts Library. Um, and so I put those books out for them. And then they, the editor came back and went, want to do more? <laughs> and I said, sure. <laughs> so I started writing earth science books. So my next series was volcanoes and earthquakes and, um, you know, rocks and gems and those kind of things. And, and I just, after that, I just kept going. Um, I did a series for, then I started to look for different publishers that I could work with. I did series on holidays and health and animals and, um, you know, and so for the next five or six years, that's pretty much what I did, um, was write library nonfiction. And then at the same time, I'm still thinking, you know, I still kind of would like to do some fiction. Um, and so I was working on fiction at the same time. And it just so happened that, um, again, an editor who had rejected a lot of my work, <laughs> she said, um, uh, just keep sending me stuff. You know, when you write things, keep, keep sending me. So I, I did. And after a few years, she, after rejecting it for quite a few years, she finally liked something that I wrote and said, I think this is, you know, worth publishing. Um, and that was at Penguin. So I did a series. I, my very first series was for Penguin. Um, it came out in 2005. Okay. And, and again, um, at that point, I started going back and forth between the two. I would write some fiction for a couple months, and then I would get that book done, and then I would swing back to nonfiction and do a library book and go back and forth between the two. Um, and did, you know, did that up until about four years ago when National Geographic came calling and said, um, we have an idea for meshing both nonfiction and fiction, and we think you might be right for, for this. Um, and then they, they had the idea of Explore Academy, which was essentially their idea was to have a, a, a fiction series where kids get together from around the globe and travel around the world and do very similar things to what the real explorers of National Geographic do. Um, and then they just gave it to me. They just kind of put it in my lap and said, okay, now <laughs> you, you decide where they go and what they do and how they do it. Okay. And it was, you know, it was perfect for me because it gave me the opportunity to be creative, come up with a great adventure story, um, and at the same time do the research that I knew and loved so well from nonfiction. So no. it was a great fit for me. The thing I found interesting is I did not realize that National Geographic never did fiction before until you. Right, right, and, and that's that, true. That I mean, they've been around forever, and that kind of yeah. surprises me that this is the first time they delved into it, especially for a children's um, or a young teen type series, because I could have yep. thought they would have done done this years ago with adults now yeah i was lucky enough to get your most recent book the tiger's nest and as i told you before the beginning of the show i had it on my desk for about a day and then it disappeared for about two (laughs) weeks and then it showed back up again 
because my 13-year-old daughter saw it, grabbed it, and started reading it. And she loved it because oh. she got sucked into it. And yeah. how many? there's five books in the series, correct? Yeah, there, there'll be two more before we're done. There's five. This is the fifth one right now. Okay. Yeah. Um, and, and the thing that when I look through it and everything else, I could actually see them doing some type of either television program, animated series, short movies, whatever, with these books. Because I think if you got the right individuals, you would actually be able to tell these stories in in live action in some way, shape, or form. Well, I think that, you know, I'm I'm such a big fan of adventure stories and... Um, I'm a Star Trek geek, you know? I mean, I love that stuff. So for me, when I write, I sort of write visually. I see the action in my head, um, and it it actually helps me to write, because I see it first, really, uh, as that, as live action, as something. So it would be so awesome if they did. Um, But that's just how I write, because for me, it's less boring and maybe that's the TV background, too. I never really considered that. But, you know, because when you're in television, you're thinking of pictures. You're, right. You know, that's, what you, that, that's, your, that's your visual um, connection with the audience. You're not just thinking about putting that story down. You're thinking, how, how will the pictures fit with what I need to say? Because you're shooting the pictures, you're putting it together. So I think that's how I write, too, when I write fiction particularly, is I'm always thinking of that story and seeing it play out as a, as a movie in front of me. It makes it easier for me to, um, I think, to tell when the action is, you know, good yeah. <laughs> and when the story might be lagging or when the pacing isn't quite right. Um, and it helps, I think it helps to move the story along for me. Because I, and like I said, from what I was able to read, I got a vibe of um, Indiana Jones. Yeah. Um, also got a vibe <laughs> of um, the series that Nicolas Cage did um, for Disney, which I can't remember the name of it right now. But I, I, I get where you're coming from on that. So the, the five titles that you wrote, did they give you the subject matter or did you no. actually take it and run with it yourself? Yeah. So all they had was the idea. Um, and, and initially they had, um, they had a couple of different authors in mind. And so they said, okay, everybody, um, write a sample chapter <laughs> and, we'll, and we'll pick. Cause they, that's really all they knew was that they wanted to have, um, Explorer Academy, kids from around the world getting together, um, and learning about and just exploring. Okay. And so, so, it, you know, kind of. Whenever you do a sample chapter for a publisher, um, and I don't do them too often, um, especially for something like this, I just had to kind of think to myself, okay, you have to sort of make up a world kind of quickly and put it all together. And I wrote a sample chapter, which is actually the first chapter. It ended up being the first chapter in the very first book. Um, and, and, you know, came up with the main character and... I, all I knew was that somebody was after him and trying to drown him. That, that's basically the first chapter. And, and I wrote that. I thought, this is going to be, you know, this is very exciting because that's what you want to do. You want to grab him. And I, I, I turned it in, and they made the decision that to, to go with me and awarded me the, the opportunity to do it, which was fantastic. But then I realized, <laughs> I don't know what happens to this character. <laughs> I, have no, I have no idea. Uh, about what happens to him or why somebody was after him. Right. And so then I had to sit down and really outline what I wanted to happen in the first book and what I wanted to happen throughout the series, at least get a general feel of it. Um, but it really came down to, too, being kind of inspired by the, the explorers of National Geographic. Um, you know, I would go and take a look at what they were doing, uh, what was some of the research that the explorers were you know, involved in, who were they as people, what were they out there doing, um, and how were they contributing and participating in the world? And, you know, um, so those were all elements that I wanted to bring in to the story that I knew I wanted to do from the get-go. Because it didn't make sense to do, you know, something about kid explorers if they weren't, uh, you know, inspired by the real explorers right. and, you know, what they're really out there doing. So th- that helped me um, by taking a look at, you know, uh, some of the 
some of the amazing things that, that they're doing and some of the incredible work that, you know, you, if you just open up National Geographic magazine, you see, you know, the amazing things that uh, scientists and researchers around the world are doing. So there's a lot of material to mine there for, for a series like this. If you've ever been a renter, you know it's stressful to find a place with everything you love and nothing you don't. But did you know Zillow does rentals? It makes the search so easy. They have filters for pretty much everything, so you can find that place that's in your budget, but also isn't a shoebox. Or a place that's close to your parents, but far enough they have to call first. Plus, it's easy to apply, request tours, and pay rent in the app. Head to ZillowRentals.com and find your sweet spot. If you've been a renter, you know it's stressful to find the perfect place. But Zillow Rentals make it easy. They have filters for pretty much everything, so you can find a rental that's big enough for entertaining your friends, but small enough they won't crash all weekend. Find your sweet spot on ZillowRentals.com. If you've been a renter, you know it's stressful to find the perfect place. But Zillow Rentals make it easy. They have filters for pretty much everything, so you can find a rental that's big enough for entertaining your friends, but small enough they won't crash all weekend. Find your sweet spot on ZillowRentals.com. You're listening to Online with Bill Alexander here on WMCK.FM, McKeesport, 107.5 FM, WLDJ, Newcastle, 1620 AM, Huntington, Mixtape Radio International, Steel FM, 99.1 FM, Radio Rehoboth, Orca Radio in Owensburg, Kentucky, and streaming online at italknet.com and pghtalkradio.com. On the phone with me right now, I am talking to Trudy Truitt, the author of Explorers Academy, and the movie that I, series I couldn't think of the name was, is American Treasure. That's it. So my audience doesn't Uh, have to get in touch with me telling me that that's what the name of it was. I figured it out while she was talking. (laughs) Um, It drives me crazy. It drives them crazy, too. So the main character in the book is Cruz Coronado. Mm -hmm. And why why did you decide it would be a male lead character? Um, You know, I... I think that this is probably terrible to say, but um, boys tend not to read okay. books books that are that have female characters, which that is something sense. we need to change. I gotcha. um, um, but I think for and, and I think for this instance, it could have really gone either way. Right. Honestly, um, I, I think I think a girl would have been just a fantastic uh, lead character, just as much as Cruz could have been. I think when you're trying to pull in boys and maybe particularly reluctant readers sometimes, um, it helps to have a male character. Um, we definitely need to work on getting boys to read books where the the main character, the main protagonist, is a female. Um, I know, but 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 for 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 our purposes, for this purpose, I think it worked pretty well pretty well to have a male character. Um, and all, and he has some great female characters. So in 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 a certain respect, I I feel like it's pretty evenly balanced. Um, even though even though Cruz is the you know he's the main guy, um, he has female characters around him that are um, you know just as important, just as valuable, um, and contribute just as much as as he does to the storyline. And his mother's also very important to the storyline. Correct. Yes, yes. His mother's very important to the storyline. Um, she was a scientist, and he's trying to follow in her footsteps. Okay. Um, and she she developed um, uh, a cell regeneration formula that was helping mankind. It might change the way mankind is able to treat diseases. And so the plot line in the story goes that um, there was a pharmaceutical company that wanted to destroy this because obviously then if she developed something that would heal mankind, um, <laughs> the drug company wouldn't be able to sell its drugs anymore. So um, th- they were threatening her. So she, realizing that her life was in danger, engraved her special formula into stone, split the stone into pieces, and then has hidden them around the world for Cruz to find. Um, and she, of course, lost her life. Okay. So now Cruz is on a mission to find all the pieces of her formula and put them back together again um, and you know so that he can he can give this to science so he's kind of on that side mission um, of finding the pieces of his mom's formula um, as he travels the world with the rest of the explorers on on the ship that circumnavigates the globe and you know of course then along the line they you know they 
they do other things. They learn about, you know, reforestation and climate change and, uh, you know, coral reef farming and all the things that the real explorers of National Geographic do. I try to weed those in um, so that, you know, that the readers are getting a little bit more of, um, of the adventure as well as a little bit of uh, uh, information about what the real explorers do. So how many kids are characters in this book series? How many, how many kids? Yeah, that's working with Cruz. Um, there are 24 explorers. Okay. But obviously, I can't do character profiles on every one of them. <laughs> so, <laughs> and not that I haven't tried, because, you know, you try to do as many as you can. But they, So they're broken up into teams. So Cruz is on Team Cousteau. So he has six. So there are really five other pretty main characters that okay. are with him on that team. So, yeah. So there's like six main characters. And then some of the other characters, um, some of the other explorers kind of weave in. And they come in and out as needed to go to classes. But, um, y- yeah, you kind of you get any more than that. And it, it starts to get a little bit confusing about who is who. So you say that the the characters are coming from all over the world. Is I mean, mm-hmm. I take it Cruz is from the United States, or right, right. Okay. He's he's from the United States, and um, his his um, friend, um, his roommate and friend, very close friend, he becomes close friends with um, is Emmett, and Emmett is a Chinese Canadian, and then there are you know Sailor, she's from New Zealand. And the other person on his team is Brindis, and she's from Iceland. Okay. And and then you know we have then like I said the other supporting cast are from um, you know I tried to be as diverse as I could and but it's really hard because I I do get letters from kids going well how come there's not a character from Poland and right. <laughs> I'm trying I can only do so but much I can um, only do so much um, so, but I think that's wonderful because you know hopefully that somewhere along the line the kids see you know something of themselves in in one of the characters um girl or boy and then of course they have you know teachers so the teachers are from different places okay. in the world too um so that kind of helps to diversify the cast and um and then there you know there are women sci- in in very important scientific roles so that was again important to you know share that uh science is for girls that it's you know an, a career option uh for girls, so they have, you know, the, the idea too is to give them some good role models okay. to follow. The reason I yeah. ask is because I think some of the topics you get into, if you're dealing with kids from different countries, their homeland is going to be looking at the diff- the issue differently than someone that's not from the same area. Um, sure. So I think that's very interesting that you you tied that in, especially if you're dealing with climate change. And you're mm-hmm. dealing with um, these type of issues that, unfortunately, in this country has become political hot buttons right now. But it's interesting right. to be able to to get the kids to understand that we're actually doing this to help, not to uh, right. do anything else. And right. I think that's very interesting the way you did it. Now, Team Cousteau, of course, we know the last name of Cousteau from Jacques Cousteau. Are there right. other team names that are dealing with <laughs> other scientists that... Um, have been <laughs> famous over the last so many years? Yeah, so the other teams are, there's Team Magellan, okay. Team Galileo, and Team Earhart. So those are the four teams um, that, you know, are... And, and then, of course, you know, at the Academy, Explorer Academy has a headquarters in Washington, D.C., which just happens to be the same address as National Geographic. Of Amazing! Course. <laughs> of course. So... There, so if you go to Explorer Academy, you will see the statues of many... Um, explorers throughout history, and not just explorers in the in the traditional sense, but you know scientists like Marie Curie, um, and and so you know the the idea is to kind of you know create this fictional world um, that you know can can really give them give kids a great educational you know op- kind of open up that educational world to them um, and get them thinking about that you know because for some kids they might go. Well, who who was uh, Amelia Earhart? Who who was Galileo? So hopefully it might you know inspire them to to do a little research and dig a little bit on their own to find out who who are these people that were innovators and um, scientists. Um, so the books are um, the first one is Nebula's Secret. 
Second one is Falcon's Feather. Third is Double Helix. Then we have Star Dunes and then the Tiger's Nest. Right. I take it, and again, if I'm wrong, please tell me, that that these books are standalone, that you can pick up anyone in the series and understand what's going on, but would it make more sense to start at the beginning and work your way all the way through? It would. It would make more sense, although I'm glad that your daughter was able to pick it up and, you know, just go with it and get it. Yeah. I think if you if you did pick it up, you wouldn't be missing too much. There okay. might be a couple of things where you where you'd go, gee, I'm not sure where that... that that minor character, where did he come from, sort of thing. Um, but because Cruz is working his way around the world, gathering the pieces of his mom's uh, formula, it does make kind of sense to start with the first book and then work your way through it. So that way, because Cruz, Cruz doesn't always keep the, the pieces of the formula. Sometimes he loses <laughs> Sometimes, Sometimes um, Nebula, his foe, might happen to steal one or two. Right. Um, so it does, you know, so he takes one step forward, <laughs> one couple of steps back. <laughs> and so that's, you know, that's great fun in plotting um, the books, too, is to be able to. Um, and they do end on cliffhangers. So uh, some of them do. Um, so, you know, I've, there is um, the book where I just left Cruz at the bottom of a well at the, at the end of the second book, <laughs> which, which some, some readers were a little frustrated with. They would write to me and say, Cruz is stuck at the bottom of a cave and the next book doesn't come out for six months. Why would you do that? <laughs> but um, the nice thing is um, all five of the books are out, and at least at the end of book five, he's not stuck, you know, hanging okay. from somewhere. So I'm I'm looking at this stuff, and you got reviews from J.J. Abrams, from James Cameron, and from LeVar Burton. Yeah. How does that make you feel that, I mean, especially J.J. Abrams and James Cameron, I mean, these are big guys in literature. Yeah, pretty amazing. Um, I think my editor was... <laughs> she was she was over the moon. I think she was pretty. You know, it was it was wonderful. It's really wonderful to uh, Lavar Burton. Is a, I'm a huge fan. Reading uh, Rainbow for on, those of you out there. Reading Rainbow and yeah. Star Trek and you know everything that he's done. It's, and the rumor it is was the rumor is Jeopardy too. But we'll see what happens. I know. I would. I, I hear he's guest hosting. So yeah. I'm looking forward to that. Um, but yeah, I mean, and you know, James Cameron, not just a great director, but a, a National Geographic explorer. Mm-hmm. And to, to have them, you know, it's just a real honor. It's a real privilege and an honor to have them read it. I was just thrilled that they would read it. <laughs> <laughs> and, and, to, and to have such kind words, um, that's, you know, really, really, uh, it, yeah, it's, it, I'm just speechless. It's just wonderful. Because that is, that is very impressive. So, um, so the Nebula Secret, what are they touching on in this? What is the environmental or the issue that they're dealing with? Well, you mean the tiger's nest? Uh, no, I'm, I'm I'm going I'm going to work all my way through. Oh, oh. Um, well, originally, so the first book, uh, the kids are heading to Explorer Academy in Washington D.C. and they're really just learning what it means to be an explorer. Okay. So um, in the first book, they are training essentially, and I have them do um, virtual reality. Uh, so there's a the computer animated virtual experience called the cave, and inside of it, it's similar to what kids would know as virtual reality. But I sort of take it up a notch, so that it actually does really feel real. So the smells are real, the atmosphere is real. You can get hurt in it. All the stuff that kids would really want in virtual reality if they could. Um, and and so the first book, they they talk about uh, they they go through and explore about butterfly migration, but they technically don't really leave Washington. TV. Okay. So it's all virtual. <laughs> so, but, but they learn about butterfly migration and monarch butterflies and, you know, how they travel to Mexico and winter in Mexico and then, you know, head back to the United States into the West and East coast. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, you know, that's kind of what I try to do in each book. There's, there's one or two missions or places that the explorers go that they le- can learn about, um, you know, the different, different topics of the day that I try to weave into it. Um, and then at the end of the Nebula Secret, so Cruz has, he's found one of the pieces that his mother has left for him, um, and then they travel on the ship. And so once they get on the ship, that is in the second book, um, then they start hitting around the world. And so I hit different spots around the world. <laughs> As we go through the series, um, they will travel to all seven continents 
And, you know, I, it's always a challenge because there's so many places to go uh, and so much for them to do. But I hope I've chosen, you know, places that interest kids, some places they may have heard about, some places they may not even know about. Mm-hmm. Um, we touch a little bit on the culture when I can, the food even. Um, but mainly it's just, you know, giving kids a great adventure story to follow along, to root for crews as he tries to find the pieces of his mom's formula, um, and the other explorers, too, as they help him, because most of Team Cousteau is helping him. So he's got a great team of friends uh, as well, and that's important, too, um, especially when you're writing an adventure. you got to have great friends going along for the ride. Right. That's part of it, too. Yeah. So when you write these books, um, how much research do you put into them for the 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 journey that they travel on and and the mm-hmm. and the place that they go to how much research do you have to do on those uh, individual places or is it pretty much what you know already no i do a lot of research um um i mean i i tried to get national geographic to to send me to hawaii and to you know but <laughs> and that's in for book whatever three, reason right? they're just yeah they're just not buying it but wh- what i try to do is um I, I like to research the places that I, I take them to extensively so that I get an idea of the, you know, the city, the culture, the traditions, the food, the music, um, and all of those things. And, and I research the topics pretty heavily, too. So if I'm going to do something on, for example, butterfly migration, then I'm going to make sure that I research that just the way that I would research it if, if I were to write a book for kids on that topic. Okay. You know, I, I want to know where the butterflies go. I want to know the problems that occur there, um, the issues. Uh, you know, so I'm going to look at, you know, we, a good example with butterfly migration is, you know, we're having problems with deforestation in Mexico. They're losing the habitat. Um, and as a result, butterfly populations are way down. So I'm going to look at all of those things. It's going to be the same way if we talk about, you know, ice melt. I'm going to look at, because they go to, in the second book, they go to Iceland, mm-hmm. um, and they explore ice caves. So we're, I'm going to talk about, you know, glacier melt. And this really is where the explorers uh, come in, because I can do research on the National Geographic explorers and find out what they're doing, read about the research that they're do- doing, um, learn myself about it, and in some cases, even contact the explorer themselves and ask them questions. Yeah, um, I was going to ask you if you had that opportunity. Yeah, yeah I, I do. I mean, they're, <laughs> I, I try not to bother them too much because they're usually on the go, busy doing their thing. But along the way, as I've been writing the books, I've had the chance to you know, meet different explorers. Um, I've even been on a book tour with a couple of the, of the explorers. Oh, so, of course, you know, wh- yeah, while we're on book tour, I mean, I pick their brain a little bit. And, right. Um, and and it's been you know good to get a feel for, and you know I've learned a lot about, I've learned a lot about <laughs> what explorers are like, what their personalities are like, and they're actually from one to another, they're all pretty similar. I don't know if they even realize how similar <laughs> they are, um, but you know they're they're of course people that are you know fascinated by the outdoors and by nature, um, but I also notice that they're not thrill seekers like you would think, because that's what I thought originally. Right. Oh, they love to go out and, you know, like to wrestle with sharks. And But the truth is they really are very safety cautious, conscious in what they do. Um, and they're out there for a reason. You know, they're, they're learning about whatever topic fascinates them, whether it's, you know, uh, coral reef farming or turtle conservation or whatever it is. Um, they're out there for a purpose. It's exploration for a purpose. Always trying to bring home information, um, you know, doing research, education, information. And so the pa- their passion is um, incredible. I mean, and it's, it's, it's inspiring to me. And, and I want to pass that along to kids that read the books. When they see the different scientists in the book and the explorers in the book, uh, you know, maybe there might be something there that strikes them when they, because like in the second book, Cruz goes and they help whales who are in trouble, who are caught in fishing nets. Okay. And Cruz is fascinated by whales. It's kind of something he's got an interest in. Um, and, you know, I've had kids write to me saying, you know, I'm kind of interested in marine biology and cetacean um, myself. And this is, you know, something I want to explore a little more. So if a kid, you know, finds that in this and, and they go out and explore a little bit more about, about 
you know, whales, just in whales in general, doesn't even have to be, you know, the plight of whales so much, but just something that triggers their passion and interest um, and makes them think and go a little further, you know, that's just a plus. So you said there's going to be seven books in the series? Yeah, there's there's going to be seven. I'm working on the last book now. Yeah. And is it because of the seven continents or is it just the number that they chose? I think it's just the number that they chose. They felt it was like a good, healthy, okay. um, a good, healthy number. And it's kind of, you know, when I started, I thought, at first I thought, I wonder if I even have enough, you know, ideas and material. And now I'm actually sad we're finishing at seven. You know, there's just so much. Oh, sure. Yeah. I, I, I want you to do one on honeybees because I realize how... They yeah. are so vital to our environment, um, the more I yes. learn about them. Well, and see, Cruz has a honeybee drone Okay. Um, by the name of Mel, who is actually his sidekick. And I have had that idea in my head to try to do something about honeybees, but I can't work it in. <laughs> <laughs> I've been trying to, like, you know, Mel goes and helps save the honeybee hive. Um but, it, but that's the problem is you have like, you know, 10 or 15 or 20 ideas and you're trying to right. read them all in and you just, but yeah, I'd love to do, I'd love to do, you know, another couple books because so, there's, yeah, honeybees are, you know, they're fascinating. And because she's a, she's a honeybee drone, I've been able to throw in information about honeybees along the way. Right. Um, but yeah, it's, it's, it's a lot of fun. So how long does it take you to write one of these books? Um... I would say about six months, maybe, about five to six months. I've slowed down a little bit from the pandemic, production-wise, right. <laughs> creativity-wise. A little bit. That kind of slows you down creatively. Um, but we were putting them out once every six months, up okay. until the pandemic hit. Okay. Which is a pretty fast pace for middle-grade books of this of this level, um, of this size. Usually, middle-grade puts out one book a year. But, you know, we wanted kids to have them in their hands. Um, kids, they grow up so fast. Right. And if I was putting out one book a year, my, my you know, 10-year-old would be 17. You're by right. The time Your audience last... wouldn't be there. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. So it's, you know, you just, you want to you wanna be able to put the books out. Um, and, of course, you know, kids write to me and say, I finished this in two days. And I'm thinking, oh, great. Yeah. <laughs> I'm not writing fast enough. Um, <laughs> so... but, but, yeah. That's the idea. Is uh, we wanted them to have put them in their hands, so it'll be a little bit slower for the last two. The next book will be out in October, number six, and then the final book will be out the following year. Okay. So it will take a year. So once you get the book written, how much editing goes through them once before they actually get published? Um, you know, I go. So I have um, I have an editor at National Geographic. And then we have a freelance editor that helps as well. Um, you know, they've actually been really, it's not as much as you might think. Um, they read it. They give notes to me, uh, make notes in the margins, and the book will come back to me, and I'll revise it. And usually, usually if I can put it away for a while, like, you know, not look at it for a month or two, uh -huh. so it'll go off to my editors for a couple months. It's amazing how when you read something you haven't read in a couple months, you go, what was I thinking? Right. That's not going to work. And so, you see, you know, mistakes kind of come out at you. Things, holes in the plot, things you, you didn't say, things you should have said, things that could be edited out. And, of course, my editors kind of, you know, go through that, too. So I will rewrite it one time, and usually that will be, um, you know, that will go to final, and then we'll, you know, we'll do small edits over the next over the course of the next couple months but so, it's not usually too and it's not usually extensively rewritten thank thankfully <laughs> so far knock on wood so once this series is over do you have any idea what you're going to be writing next i i really don't um i've i have an idea file that i keep on my computer where i sort of go through and every time i come up with ideas i kind of throw it in that file and and i usually um i'm working on the last book now so usually when i'm um, getting close to finishing a book, I will start to open that file and kind of take a look into it and see what's um, see what piques my interest a little bit. And of course, you know, I would love to do more with National Geographic. So, and I think there's I think there's a whole um, I think there's a whole new 
way that you can take um, fiction, and I like the you know I like the fact based fiction um, genre. So I would love to do you know I would love to do more with them or something more along those lines. I think it's really um, it's powerful. It's powerful literature for kids. Okay, um, when they can read. Um, you know about reality. I think I love I love fantasy. I love dragons and magic and all that stuff. But um, I think there is some power in in this kind of um, this kind of genre that you know opens the world up to kids in a real way. Because you know the places that I take them in the book are real. Um, most of the technology is real, or at least cutting edge technology. I might push it a little bit in terms of imagination. But a lot of, like, the rope, there's robotics in the book. You know, there's, um, there's you know, te- like, the virtual reality. Um, there's photography. And, and all of those things are, you know, those are real, real technology, real breakthroughs, real things that, that kids can, um, you know, wrap their minds around and maybe find an interest in or find a passion for. So I can't believe it, but we're almost done. Uh- <laughs> Because I could still it ask flies, you more questions. <laughs> um, my, my, my final question for you is, is there anything you want to tell my audience about the series and about what you're doing um, to let them know? Because a lot of my listeners have kids of this age. And how would you uh, promote it to them? Oh, I would, I would just say that, you know, um, I, I think it's a series for kids who love adventure, um, who love technology, who love science, who love nature, who love being outdoors. And, I mean, ultimately, when you write, you want the reader to have a great time. Um, You want them to be interested, engaged. You want them to love the characters, love the story. enjoy it. And that's really what I want for the readers of Explore Academy to do. I just want them to enjoy the journey with me um, and to take it with me. I'm kind of one of those people that when I, re- when I read, books have to keep my attention. I have a lot of books that I've never finished. I still right. never finish. <laughs> yeah. And so, you know, that's, that was my goal with Explore Academy was to just take, take the reader on a journey where you don't want to put that book down. You want to keep reading. And I've had kids write to me and say, you know, I didn't know. I didn't know this. I didn't, I didn't know that, you know, I didn't know about whales. I didn't know about this career. I didn't know about this part of the world. I didn't know about, you know, sea turtle conservation or habitat restoration or coral reef farming or coral bleaching or those kind of things. And I'm fascinated by that. And so I, that's, you know, that's what I wanted to do was to put out a great story um, that, maybe you can find yourself in the pages of that book or even lose yourself in the pages of that book. Well, Trudy, thank you very much um, for joining me this evening. Good luck with everything. And I oh, hope, thank to, get, you, Bill. To, be able a pleasure. to hope to be able to talk to you again in the future. I'd love that. Thank you so much. Have a great night and we'll talk to you next time. Okay. Okay. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. Trudy Truitt, author of the Explorer Academy, um, from National Geographic, and a very enjoyable interview this evening. Um, I will put a link on the uh, website page of where you can buy the books, and you know Amazon and and uh, all those places like that. But I'll I'll put that link out there so you can get access to them. It is it is a great book series. Um, I kind of wish I would have done this before Christmas because this would have been a great gift for a um, 12, 13, 14, 15 year old for a Christmas lift. But hey, you can buy them for another holiday too, maybe Easter. Um, so again, it's it's something something to look into. And again, very, very, uh, very intriguing. Like I said, my 13-year-old picked it up. It disappeared for two weeks and I just got it back yesterday. <laughs> Actually, no, I got it back Monday when I got it back because that's when we were supposed to do the interview. But uh, things got screwed up on my end. But that's going to wrap it up for yours truly, Bill Alexander. Thank you very much for uh, joining us. I really appreciate it. Also, thank you to all the radio stations that kindly... Bring us into your homes and your cars and on your uh, on your mobile devices at WMCK.FM, um, Hall of Fame Music Radio, 107.5 FM, 1620 AM Huntington, Mixtape Radio International, Steel FM, 
WWSX Radio 99 Rehoboth, Orca Radio, Owensburg, Kentucky, and of course, streaming online at italknet.com and pghtalkradio.com. Folks, I am out of here. You guys have a great night, and we'll talk to you next time here online with yours truly, Bill Alexander. This has been a Million Dollar Baby production. For more information, go to italknet.com. Rumkey is hiring CDL drivers age 19 and up, and drivers are paid based on experience. Rumkey CDL drivers earn $1,000 to $1,300 per week and more than $10,000 in bonuses possible in their first year. Rumkey drivers are home daily, work in a recession-resistant industry, receive great benefits and performance incentives. Start a lucrative career and apply now at rumkeycareers.com. Equal opportunity employer restrictions apply. If you've ever been a renter, you know it's stressful to find a place with everything you love and nothing you don't. But did you know Zillow does rentals? It makes the search so easy. They have filters for pretty much everything, so you can find that place that's in your budget, but also isn't a shoebox. Or a place that's close to your parents, but far enough they have to call first. Plus, it's easy to apply, request tours, and pay rent in the app. Head to ZillowRentals.com and find your sweet spot. Live life at your pace. Click the banner or go to VisitWilliamsburg.com to discover how. Because here in Williamsburg, life moves at one pace, yours. Visit a live archaeological dig site on the very grounds where America began. Or walk the fields where our country was won. Live like a colonial by day or track 18th century ghosts by night. For all the history to be found here, there's plenty more to make for yourself. It's all waiting for you in Williamsburg. Book your trip today and live life at your pace. Hear that? That's the sound of a patient whose health data is protected from a cyber attack. And that, that's the sound of a financial system that's digitally secured from bad actors. Right now, there's an invisible war being fought on a digital battlefield that impacts what we do every day. That's why at Paraton, we do the can't be done to help protect the vital systems we rely on. Because if we don't, the alternative is unimaginable. Paraton.